evening. Let's stand all over the house this evening. Let's uh, join in worship together. We're going to sing an old hymn of the church. It simply just says, Victory in Jesus. So let's worship tonight.
prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just love you and we glorify your name tonight. And Father, we welcome you in this place today. Lord, we can truly say it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. Father, everything that is done in the remaining portion of this service today, let it be for the upbuilding and the advancement of your kingdom. For that, we give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Christ's name we pray. The people of God said amen. Amen. Now you take the next few moments and just greet those around you at this time in the Lord. your way back to your seats tonight. Let's remain standing, and uh, we're going to jump right back in to, to worship tonight. And let's worship the Lord. We're going to sing some old praise courses, many of them you already know, uh, but we're going to just ask you to uh, join with us as we sing some of these tonight. Well, now this is the day.
Father, we love you today, and we glorify your name. We know that we are gathered in your house, in your place of residency to worship you, and to honor you, and to glorify you, and to magnify you. Father, we have felt your presence in this house today, and we know, God, that your presence goes before us, and behind us, and beside us. So, God, we thank you for the presence of God that we have felt in this house today. Thank you for the presence of God we feel in this house tonight. And God, there may be some streaming online or watching uh, online tonight. Lord, I pray that wherever they are, you would meet them where they are as well and you'd speak to them. Father, I know we have some that are in travel mode right now that are traveling on vacation, some that are traveling home from family reunions, some that are just, Lord, unable to be here for other things and irons in the fire but Lord you know what they are where they are and what they have need of Father I believe that just like you were with us this morning you'll be with us tonight and I believe God that you have a word for your people and Father that always Lord that we can truly when we leave this place be able to say it was good to be in the house of the Lord and gathered with the people of God I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the people of God said amen while you remain standing, if you'll grab your Bibles and go to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter number 5, the book of Acts chapter number 5, we're going to begin reading in verse number 19 and verse 20. Let me say to the band today that helped cover for Sister Sherry and some of them, they were out, they did an amazing job, they're always such a blessing to our church, we had a lot of moving parts, Sister Madison's been on the computer all day fighting it, it's been quite a journey this morning and this afternoon it has had its its fair share of technological difficulties today and uh but she's done that and uh brianna has helped me so eloquently to with the sound today to make sure that everybody can be heard to the best of their ability we're doing our best to get everything squared away but uh, she's got thrown into the fire she should have been in children's church but i swapped everybody around to have her in here today and and so we appreciate her helping us today <clears throat> as well and uh, God has been good to us all, and we, we thank him. And, and uh, we had lots of people out today that are our own home folks. Um, just we all the James family, most of them, uh, were out of town for family reunion. That was Aaron and, and her baby and, and uh, Riley and Brantley and Tana and Brandon, and the list goes on. And, and uh, uh, we still had over 60, I think it was 64, 63, 64, 63 on, on campus today. And we counted this afternoon the people that were out for family reunion and those that were traveling and those that couldn't be here due to work every other week, work schedules. We could have had 91 people in church this morning if they would have been here. And uh, so God's moving and he's sending people and he is letting us know he's still in control. And uh, if 91 people show up one Sunday morning, you better bring some fans and start moving seats because we're going to run out of room. Uh, but God's going to help us with that too. Acts chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. And uh, here's what the word uh, of the Lord says to us today. But at night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said to them, Go, stand in the temple. And speak to the people all the words of this life. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And obviously, we'll talk about it here in a moment, but it's the apostles. The apostles have been arrested for preaching Jesus. They have been arrested 
after Acts chapter uh, number 2 and, and the experience of, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they started preaching in the synagogues and they were preaching the gospel and some folks didn't like it. They didn't like what was going on and so they had them arrested for preaching the gospels. And today I want to just talk to you very briefly uh, so that I can be punctual on time and get you out of here. Uh, I just want to talk to you about deliverance from footholds. Deliverance from footholds. The enemy has every intention to keep the church of the living God in footholds. He doesn't want the church to physically grow. He doesn't want the church to spiritually grow. He doesn't want the church to be financially blessed. The enemy would love nothing more. We saw it through COVID. We've seen it through people's sicknesses and deaths. The enemy loves nothing more than to create a panic or a, or a spirit of fear within the body of Christ. He loves nothing more than to put us, if you will, in spiritual bondage or footholds and make us think there's no way out. But I still believe that God is a God who delivers even those who are held by things in their past, things that maybe they're holding them back in their present. But God is a God that is a deliverer from footholds. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of this word. Let us not only be hearers of this word, but doers thereof likewise. Take a coal from the altar of heaven, anoint these lips of clay, that I may decree and declare what thus saith the Lord. I pray you'd give me strength, God, today to preach your word. And not let my words be heard, but your words be spoken. And when we leave this place, we may be challenged, may be chastised, but ultimately changed by the power of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, our Lord. Amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord this evening, if you can. Acts chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 is a very interesting story, or a plot, if you will, of a story. As I shared with you briefly a while ago, the apostles, the early apostles, they had had quite an experience. They had had quite a church service, if you will, in Acts chapter 2. They had went to church one Sunday. We don't know what day, but, but we'll just say in our Judeo-Christian calendar, maybe it was a Sunday. They had went to church like we do on Sunday. They were waiting and waiting. They were praying. They were seeking the Lord. They were asking God for, for him to send this promised one that Jesus had told them about. And, and uh, they, were, they were anxiously anticipating his arrival. On this particular Sunday, the Holy Spirit fell. And, and they began to be endued with power. And they began to have a heavenly prayer language. And they, Peter stood over the bow of the, of the if you will, the portico or, or over the, 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 the balcony of the house. And he preaches Jesus. He preached Jesus from being virgin birth. He preached Jesus from being a carpenter's son. He preached Jesus from being the one who did countless miracles that the scrolls could not contain all that Jesus did. He preached Jesus being tested by the Sanhedrin. He preached Jesus being ultimately sentenced to die by Pilate. He preached Jesus, the one that was scourged and bruised and battered and his flesh marred and disfigured for me and you. He preached Jesus that died on a cross in a, in a, if you will, unmerciful and just a grotesque form of death. He preached Jesus being put into the heart of the earth in a borrowed tomb by Joseph, by a man of the name of Joseph of Arimathea. 
He preached Jesus staying within that tomb and how the women had came and prepared the body of Christ. He, he preached Jesus laying there for three silent days. Nothing was heard. Nothing was seen. Nothing was happening. It seemed all hope was lost. It seemed like their deliverer had been delivered, if you will, at the hands of men and ultimately the hands of Satan and, and the enemy of our soul. But then he also preached that three days later, early in the morning, as the women were on their way to the tomb and I know it's not Easter, but Easter is every day. It's not just something we celebrate in March and April, but I believe that every day is Easter because Jesus said he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And the Bible tells me that Jesus is alive. And Jesus was not Jesus is not just alive in March and April. He's alive in June, July, August, September, October, November, December, January, and February. Whatever month you're in, Jesus is still alive and well. And he preached that early in that morning the angelic angels began to sing. There was a sweet aroma, if you will, in the room. The atmosphere began to change in that garden tomb. And as the dew had kissed the beautiful flowers around that garden tomb, God dispatched an angel, most likely a cherub, which was a guardian, as we talked about the other week, of God's presence. He dispatched one down to a tomb, and he took a heavy, uh, if you will, stone, uh, a rolled uh, stone or a big rock and a, and a stone covering, and he rolled it back. And Jesus, in all his majestic glory and glorified body, stepped out from the tombs and out from the, the grave, if you will, and he appeared to him. He appeared unto Many people over a 40-day period of time, Jesus uh, began to, to show himself, uh, if you will, to, to over 500 eyewitness accounts that could verifiably say, I've seen him, i touched him. I've talked to him. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something Peter's just talking about. It's not something John just saw at the tomb. But 500 witnesses verified we've seen him. We've talked to him. We acknowledge he's alive. Peter said that, that, that as he preached Jesus on that Pentecost Sunday... He said that he saw Jesus begin to stand on that Mount of Olives and he stood there and all of a sudden Jesus' body started losing gravitational uh, leverage on this earth and he slowly began to levitate out of sight and he got to the clouds and he disappeared behind the great clouds of glory. And Peter said, and we've been waiting for 10 days for Jesus to send someone he called the Comforter, someone he called the Holy Spirit, someone he called the Paraclete. And we've been waiting for that. And he said as he was getting ready to finish his message on Pentecost Sunday, Peter said, this is that which the prophet Joel spoke about, that in the last days, saith the Lord, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Young men will have visions. This is it. This is the spirit that God promised us. The Bible said he felt real spiritual. He said, you know what? I think I'm going to give a good altar call. And he said, is anybody here today want to know about this Jesus I just preached about? There's no other name under heaven and earth by which men must be saved. But it's Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Peter was the first Billy Graham crusade of the Bible, if you will. He said, whosoever will, let him come. And, and he asked, and 5,000 people lifted their hands in submission and said, I want to be saved. I want to know this Jesus. And were added to the church. They not only got saved, but they joined the church and said, I'm going to follow Jesus every step of the way. But there's one problem. Not everybody liked the story. 
not everybody thought this was a good story. In fact, Pharisees and Sanhedrin were trying to pay people off to lie and say that the disciples had stolen the body. They were trying to squelch it. It got so bad that some of them in closed meetings began to say to one another, we should just arrest them all, kill them all. And, and one of them, wise enough, said, well, look, there's been other people that have claimed to be gods. And we just let them, if you will, do their thing. And over time, it fizzled out. So if we just leave these people alone, what's going to end up happening is if it's not of God, it's going to fizzle out. But if this is of God, it doesn't matter what we do, we can't stop him. And so let's just leave him alone. So they kind of thought about that for some time period, but some of them still didn't like it. In Acts chapter 5, at the beginning of that, two people in particular, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell some land and they want to give it to the church. But they don't want to give all of it. They want to only give a certain portion. And so when they come to Peter, they, they kind of, if you will, lie if, in essence about what they agreed to do. And uh, the Bible says that both of them dropped dead in the presence of Peter for lying because he was full of the Holy Spirit. And the, the Bible says that the apostles began to do many signs and wonders. Well, the more signs and wonders they did, the more angry the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees got to the point that they finally said, we've had enough. We can't do this anymore. We're going to arrest them. So they arrest them and they take them to prison. The Bible says that the high priest rose up and all that were with him, which was a sect of the Sanhedrin, and filled with indignation, they grabbed the apostles by hand and they put them in a commoner's prison. They put them with the general population, we call it general pop today, in, in lockup. They weren't in solitary confinement. They were in general population. See, as long as when you're in prison, if you're in solitary confinement, yes, it's dark and isolated, but at least you're safe because when you're in solitary confinement, no one can get to you. But when they finally get you and they put you in what they call general population or general pop, there's nothing you can do because everybody has access to you and that's where you see murders and that's where you see uh, unrest and civil unrest and gang wars and things happen. That happened during, if you will, a time of general population. They put them with the rest of the murderers and the thieves hoping that something maybe bad would happen to them. Maybe their problem would be fixed, Brother James, because one of those other murderers in there wouldn't like him either. He'd just go ahead and take Peter, James, and John. He'd go ahead and take them out in prison, and their hands were clean. They didn't have nothing to do with it. It was all good. So they throw them in prison, the common prison. They didn't give them flat-screen TVs. They didn't give them filet mignon dinners. They didn't give them amenities. Put them in there with all the other criminals of the day. But by Acts chapter 5 and verse 19, they're in prison that night. They're awaiting, if you will, their, if you will, their, their, their uh, sentencing. They're awaiting the next morning for, if you will, bail hearing. They're waiting for the judge to come out. It was in the middle of the night. They're, they're waiting in the morning to, to, to go, Brother Mike, before the judge and say, okay, you know, Oh, what do you plead? Not guilty on these charges. Okay, bail is set for this. Or he, the, 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 the person must be uh, remand, uh, remanded for, for X number of times. They were just waiting. But in the middle of the night, while they're just snoozing against the ironclad bars that's held them back, they have 
fetter, uh, they have uh, fetters around their feet. They have stocks and bonds that have them chained to walls. Their heads leaned up against an iron or a metal framed door, if you will, of the prison. And it's kind of just leaning. I don't know if they were singing. I don't know if they had prayed and drifted off to sleep. The Bible doesn't tell us whether they were praising this time, whether they were singing, whether they were worshiping, whether they were praying, or whether they were sleeping. But what we do know is somewhere throughout the night, somewhere in that night, Something changed in the room. Because they're sitting in there. They're all locked up. There's nowhere to go. There's no place to hide. They're just stuck. They're not going anywhere. They're not going to get out for good behavior. They're just stuck for the cause of Jesus Christ. I don't know what happened. And what caused heaven to get. What caused. Was caused to get heaven's attention. But somewhere in the night. The Bible says. There comes an angel showing up. He doesn't ask the security guard, excuse me, can you tell me which cell block the apostles are in? Are they in the D block, C block, F block? Which block are the apostles in? Because I, I don't believe that God ever loses his children. Jonah tried to run from God. God found him in the ocean. You cannot outrun God. God knows where you are even when you don't know where God is. He always. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro. God always knows where you are even when you don't know where God is. And the Bible says, I don't believe he, the angel had to ask because he already knew which cell block they were in. He already had heard the praises come from that block. It was as if a sweet aroma in, a, in the nostrils or an incense to the nostrils of God. God could smell the praise from heaven from where they were located. The Bible says the angel of the Lord opened the door. It did not say that he walked in there and said, Hey guys, listen, I can't really get these doors open because I don't have the key. So what we're going to do is we're going to dig a tunnel out the back of this thing with some some little tiny shovels here. We're going we're gonna to hop that, that uh, if you will, wired fence out there. And we're going to crawl out over there. It didn't say that. It didn't say, guys, I can't get the doors open. So we're going to just be like ghosts. We're just going to like walk right through the door without it ever opening. And it's as if the door's not there. It's going to be like a figment of our imagination. Like a dream. No, no, no. That's not what it says either. It says the angel of the Lord opened the door. Well, the only way you could open a door is if you have the right key to unlock the door. Well, they didn't ask the security guard. They didn't ask the, the, the jailer. They didn't ask the, war, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the warden of the prison. They didn't ask, can I borrow your keys? Nowhere in Scripture do we find they ask for keys. The reality of it is this. God doesn't need our keys. And I'm not just talking about physical keys. God doesn't need us to make his glory known God doesn't need us to fix his story God God need, would like for us to be available but God doesn't even need you to complete his story God's story will get completed whether we are in it or not he doesn't need us he longs for us to be a part of it but God doesn't need us he doesn't need our keys he doesn't need our keys of wisdom 
The Bible says there's a way that seems right unto man, but in the end it leads to death. The Bible doesn't need our intellect. God doesn't need our intellect. God doesn't need our skill set. God doesn't need our talents and abilities. Can he use them for his glory? Absolutely. Does he need them? No, 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 he doesn't. God owns everything. He doesn't need anything. The reality of it is God doesn't have to ask for our help. We're the ones needing the help of the Lord instead. The reality of it is those angels didn't need metal or, if you will, iron-clad keys. They had the keys of the kingdom. They didn't need keys to open up physical doors, even though they could do that. But they had. They walked in the power of the Lord. They could walk through things. They could do things supernaturally. They had the keys of heaven on their side. They unlocked the door. And when they unlocked the door... The Bible says they brought them forth and said, go and preach in the temple. Go speak in the temple to the people the words of life. What they're saying is, get up from here, go back to church, and preach Jesus again. The same thing that got you arrested, go back out there and do it again. Because the preaching of the cross is foolishness to some. And to those that are perishing, though, it is the way of life. For some people, they don't want to hear the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it doesn't mean anything to them. But to those of us that are lost in need of a Savior, it is the power of God unto man to salvation. The preaching of Jesus Christ is the only hope we have in this life is Jesus Christ. They begin to preach the gospel. But I started thinking, if they opened the door, they still are locked in their stocks and bonds. They're chained to the wall. You can't get out. You can't just pull them and they fall out the walls. These are, these are bolted in. They're heavy of iron. They're, they're strong. So the angel that had to open the door had to also be the ones to unlock the shackles off their feet and hands so they could get out of the place. The Bible tells us you know, throughout Scripture, the Bible tells us metaphorically, that God wants us to shake off the heavy weight that so easily entangles us or shackles or that heavy weight so that we can run the race that is set before us. Lay aside every weight that so easily entangles you or what? Captivates you or captures you. There's an old song that said, take the shackles off my feet so I can dance. I just want to praise you. I just want to praise you. You open prison doors. You, you've set that. I just want to lift my hands and praise you. The reality of it is and our life sin has held us shackles and, and, and our decisions of life sometimes can he, he, keep us captive but Jesus Christ is the one that said whom the son sets free is free indeed whom the son maketh free is free indeed whatever the enemy has laid hold of you shackled you to bound you to and incarcerated you in the power of Jesus Christ can set you free the reality of it is they let him go. He gets out, and they go to church. They begin to preach Jesus. They preach Jesus again. And I begin to think, and I started thinking, what are some of the footholds of the enemy that still plagues churches today? Peter, James, and John, the apostles, they get out of prison physically to go to church to preach Jesus. But what are some spiritual footholds that the church 
needs deliverance from. I'm not talking about the world. Though I will probably hit a few things of the world. But what are the ones that churches still are being held captive by? Or still being, if you will, incarcerated by? The first one I thought of is there's the footholds of confusion. People don't know what they believe. They go to church. They go to one church. They hear the preacher preach. The next Sunday they go to the church across town. Brother James here, a preacher, preach about the same thing but a totally different way and act like he doesn't believe the same thing the last guy preached. So they're thinking, I've got preacher A that says I'm supposed to live like this and i got preacher B that says I'm supposed to live like this. Which preacher's right? Both of them claim to be mouthpieces of God. Both of them claim to be orators of God's word. Both of them claim that they've been spending their time in prayer. Which one of them do I follow? Confused. We know we already live in a confused world where people think that people are now identifying as horses and cats and dogs and all these crazy loony bin things. You can identify however you want to, but heaven's going to identify you by who you were made to be, not whatever animal you decided you wanted to be. And you can try to say when you get to heaven, my name is, you know, Jimmy spelled with an I, but if your name is really Jimmy with a Y, God's going to call you boy Jimmy, not girl Jimmy, even if you want to be girl Jimmy and not boy Jimmy. Hello. You could try to change everything about how God created you to be all you want to, but the reality of it is this world's in confusion. They don't know if they want to be a boy or a girl. They don't know if they want to be a he or she. They don't know if they want to be an it or a they. They don't know if they want to be them, 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 those, they. They don't know if they're what they are. They, they want to be non-binary. We don't even know what we want to be. We want to identify as just nothing, really. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. And I want to tell you, it ain't just the world that's confused. It's the church world that's confused, too. You got people who don't know whether or not Pentecost is still real, if the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of speaking in a heavenly language is still real. You got people that will debate if fasting is still an ordinance of the church, should you still do communion? You got people that will argue whether or not you should have prayer lines and anoint the, the sick, so that call the elders of the church and anoint the sick and lay hands on them so they'll recover. You got people questioning all kinds of stuff in the church. That's not the world, that's our people, church people. How do I know this? Well, in Exodus chapter 32, we know that God's people have been delivered from Egyptian bondage. God's people, church people, they've been delivered from Egyptian bondage. Moses gives a, gets instruction from God to come up to Mount Sinai to get some tablets of law or the commandments of God. He takes Joshua alongside of him. And in Exodus chapter 32 and around verse number 17 and 18, the Bible tells us that Joshua hears a noise in the camp. He hears a lot of rumblings going on down at the bottom of the mountain. And he goes, Moses, we got to get back down there. There's war in the camp. There's a war that's broke out. We got to get down there because something bad's happening. Moses, though, was a, was a discerner and he, he had the Spirit of God in him and he knew things. He said, No, Joshua, let me tell you, son, that ain't the sound of war. That's not that's the sound of confusion. They're rejoicing, but they're not rejoicing for the things we think they're rejoicing about. And when Moses and Joshua rounded the corner of the base of that mountain, they saw this big golden calf. 
where the people of God had traded the power of God for the placement of a golden calf. They had, they had traded the trust in an almighty God into a golden image idol. It got so bad they tried to lie about their sin. Aaron said, the people just brought me the stuff. I didn't know what to do. I threw it into the fire, and when I just scooped it out the fire, it made itself look like a calf. Moses says, Aaron, you're lying. That's not how that works. Uh, you know you had to fashion it with your hands. Why did he make it a calf? Because Egyptians, that the, the Egyptians where they had come from, the bondage they were in prior to deliverance, they had gods of agriculture. They had gods of solar systems. They had gods of water. They had gods of sun, moon, and stars. And so Israel would have known how the gods of Egypt looked. So they made a mimic, if you will, or made a, a similar god to mimic that of Egypt. They said if the gods of Egypt, they can take us back to Egypt so we don't die in the desert. Can I tell you the devil knows how to mimic speaking in tongues. The devil knows how to mimic church. The devil knows how to make you think the worship leaders anointed. The devil knows how to make you think God's in the house. But I'm telling you the only thing the devil cannot do, he cannot live a sanctified life because a sanctified life means that you have to be holy and blemish without blemish and you have to be set apart. I'm telling you I've been in church services where people thought God was in the house but God was nowhere close to that house. There's people running, they're jumping, they're crying, they're screaming, they're hollering, they're trying to speak in a heavenly language and people are going, oh my, God's in this house. No, that's the devil causing the church to be in a spirit of confusion because people didn't have the gift of discernment. The devil can mimic many things but he will never be God and God alone. They were confused. There was commotion. There was a sound. Why were they confused? Well, they were living corruptly. They had been murmuring against God's man, Moses. They have doubted every step Moses has taken them. They have turned away from God. They become stiff-necked, as the Bible described them in verse 9 of chapter 32. They were stiff-necked people, a people set in their ways and not budging. But can I tell you that even in the midst of confusion, God's a God that knows how to bring order out of chaos and how to make things understandable in the middle of confusion. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 it says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. That will help you be able to think differently. Proverbs 3 and 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It is He that will make your path known. John 8 and 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And He that follows me no longer walks in darkness, but walks in light. He's the only one to make sense of this world and this church in chaos. I would like to tell you, I wish I could tell you, that every church you go into has the Spirit of God moving, it has the breath of God blowing, and it's the, it is the power and presence of God that you feel. But I'm sorry to tell you that not every church has God in their house. They may have the sign that says, so-and-so Bible church, so-and-so community church, so-and-so church of the whatever. But I'm going to tell you there's a lot of pop-up churches and pop-up preachers and pop-up worship leaders and pop-up singers and pop-up band members that they are no more anointed or closer to God than a sinner who has no idea who God is. 
And yet they, they can get on stage and they can put on a show and people think, wow, that's Jesus. No, 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 honey. That's, that's the devil mimicking the things of Jesus. You don't think the devil, the devil, his job before he was kicked out of heaven was leading worship. He was a worship leader in heaven. That's why Jesus said, I saw Satan and fall like lightning from heaven. Satan was over the angelic choirs, if you will of heaven so you don't think if he was over all of heaven's choirs he doesn't know how to lead a choir on earth you don't think if he was over heaven's band he don't know how to make a band sound good on earth you don't think if he know how to sing holy 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 is the lord god almighty he can't make you think he's singing holy 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 down here that's why the bible says we must have men and women with the gift of discernment not everything that speaks in tongues is the holy spirit not everything that jumps is the power of god not everything that lifts their hands is surrendering to Jesus not everything that professes Jesus Jesus said many people will cry Lord Lord but when they come and stand before me I'll say depart from me for I don't even know who you are I don't know you so there's a foothold of confusion but there's also a foothold of contention I would love to say to you that that's only a problem in the world but it's a problem in the church there's a lot of contention in church. I hate to say it, but it's true. There are many churches that have went through church split. And then that church split again. And then that church split again. And then some of the splits split off from splitting. They were splitting everywhere. They were doing more splits than a USA gymnast. They were, they were, they were, they were like splintering of wood. There's just pieces flying everywhere. I always amazed when I go to town towns that have first you know first baptist church or first presbyterian church or first church of god you go three miles up the road and then you got second presbyterian second baptist second church of god i figured it out the first ones were the ones that were all together the second ones were the ones that didn't like the first ones anymore so they moved down the street and made the second one so now you can pick if you want to go to the first one or the second one you can pick whichever one you want to the reality of it is churches will be splitting they're not just splitting over theology and doctrine. They are, but they're splitting over colors of carpets, lights, sound, musical instruments. Some of them split over trivial things, stupid things, in my opinion. People get jealous at each other. Brother so-and-so, brother Randy's got more people coming to his Sunday school class and I got coming to my Sunday school class. Maybe I should go talk to the preacher about letting me take Brother Randy's class or maybe maybe I should start another class or whatever because who's most of anything he is? He gets to offer all the coffee and the donuts and they get to have fun in Sunday school. No wonder everybody comes to his church, a bunch of hypocrites back there drinking coffee and having donuts while the rest of us are in, in the in the sanctuary or we have to sit in one of the side classrooms and, and, and you know, if I was able to offer coffee and donuts, more people would come to my class too, but I don't get that privilege so jealous of each other nobody has done that here I'm just giving that example so you understand that these things happen in church you'd be shocked I served at a church one time where there was a lady that was doing ministry and every ministry she went to it thrived and there was another lady in the church that was so jealous of her that when that lady would start her starting a ministry and start growing the other lady would go and try to undermine that ministry all she could because she could not stand for that ministry to thrive and hers not and it got to a point she would try to take over that lady's job or she would try to bounce around and keep doing it. And for a long, you know what she did? She created factions in the church and there were multiple little churches within the umbrella of one church. And before long, the entire church split. And it was all over. Convention. Not getting along. 
not being able to just work together as part of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 11, the Bible tells us the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church at Corinth, his very first letter to the church at Corinth, he calls them and addresses them because he heard they've had some contention at church. He didn't write it, Brother James. The, 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 the letter of Corinth was not written to sinners. It was written to the church at Corinth. It wasn't all you brood of vipers and hypocrites and low-down scoundrels and scumbags of the earth and rascals over there in Corinth. I've heard you people can't get along. No, no, no. He wrote this to the church. He said, I have, it's come to my ears that there are some of you of the house of Chloe that are not getting along with each other and there is divisions among your house. That was the church he was talking to. Church people. He said, I've heard that you got preacher religion. Some of y'all want to say, well, I was under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Some of you are saying, well, I was under the ministry of Apollos. Some of you are saying, well, I was under the ministry of Cephas, Simon Peter, the pristine apostle of apostles, the apostle of all apostles, the one who was right there with Jesus. I was with Peter. Some of you are saying, I don't like any of those guys. I just like Jesus and all the preachers are, you know, sorry, low-down preachers. I don't like none of them. I didn't like Paul. I didn't like Peter. I didn't like Apollos. I'll just stick with Jesus because the rest of them are sorry. He said, but you're missing the point. It ain't about who was of Paul. It's not about who was of Peter. It's not about who was of Apollos. It's about that one plants the seed, one waters the seed, but everything gives God credit. It's all about God. That's what he told them. But it was the church he was talking to. He started addressing in chapter 3 their carnal thinking. He says, you're thinking in the flesh. And it's causing you to not get along with each other. He started to address their off-balance thinking. In chapter 5, he addresses moral issues not going on in the world. Hello? In chapter 5, he's not addressing the moral issues of the world. He's addressing the moral issues that are going on at church. By chapter 6, he's addressing civil issues. Not about the world suing one another, but the body of Christ taking one another to the cleaners. By chapter 12 and 13, he starts talking about spiritual issues. Not of the world. He says we're all, for chapter 12, he starts out, we're all members of one body, but the eye can't say to the hand or the foot can't say to the, you know, to the arm, we don't need, we need each other. By chapter 13, he tries to tell us we got to have love above everything because it's patient, it's kind, keeps no records wrong. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to God's people. But I want to tell you that God also can deliver us from contention. Revelation chapter 2 verse 4 and 5 tells us to repent and we can regain our first love by doing our works over. We can regain that first love. Romans 5 and 5 says to allow the Holy Spirit to apply God's love to our hearts. First Thessalonians 5 12 and 13 says as all manners that depends on you be at peace among yourselves. Learn to work together not split apart. And finally I believe there's another foothold the devil uses. Not only does he use confusion and contention, but he'll use condemnation. And this is the one that nobody likes to talk about. The world is more accepting of sinners than the church is of sinners. But yet it's the church that says, come 
find rest. Come and find peace. Come and find hope. Come and find the answers. Come and meet this man called Jesus of change life. We're the ones that supposedly are protorting the propagandized message of Jesus is the only way. You need Jesus. Yet when they come, if they don't fit a certain mold, we don't like the ones Jesus sent us. It's like the man who went fishing. A man was there fishing one day, and he was out there throwing his line. And he was fishing, and he kept pulling in the same type of fish every time. There's a man the next boat over, Brother James, that threw out this big dragnet. He literally just threw it out there with weights, and it dropped to the bottom of the ocean. It, was, it had a rope. He let it sit out there for a couple of hours, and he started pulling the rope in, and he pulled it back into shore, and he began to open the net, and there were different forms, fashion, shapes, sizes, colors of fish in the net. And the man that was, the two men were coming back in, they were coming into the shore, and there was someone that was standing there, and they started, they struck up a conversation, and the man that was fishing with the lure, and the man that was fishing with the dragnet happened to be in the same conversation, they were just talking about their fish, and the, the third person walked up and said, I got a question, tell me about your fish, and so they were telling about it, and so one man, he said, he was fishing with the lure, he said, uh, to him, he said, so Tell me what you were trying to catch. He said, I was trying to catch striped bass. That's all I wanted. I didn't care about anything else. If I caught something else just by accident, I threw it back. I didn't want it. I only want a striped bass. That's all I was fishing for. Anything else, I threw it back. He looked at the man that had the big drag net. He said, man, you got so many fish. Which ones are you throwing back? He said, I don't know. Probably none of them. I didn't, I didn't, he said, I, he said, well, what were you fishing for? He said, I was fishing for fish. Yeah, but what kind of fish? Fish. I didn't care which one I got. I just wanted to get one. And the, and the story goes that that man that heard that conversation went home and he kind of wrote those, that conversation down and he started to read in his Bible and he began to think that when Jesus called us fishers of men, he didn't tell us which lure to use. Jesus didn't say fish for white people only. Jesus didn't say just fish for rich people. Jesus didn't say fish for wealthy people for, or fish for educated people or fish for a certain type of fish. Jesus said we're fishers of men. Jesus' version was throw the net out there and whatever gets caught in the drag net when you bring it in, that's the fish I want. I don't care what the fish is. I just am fishing for fish. It is not our job to decide who, when, where, how, and what walks through these doors. It is our job to show them that he's the only way. That's our job. They're red, yellow, black, and white. They're precious in his sight. They're rich, poor, educated, or dumb as a rock. They're welcome to Jesus. They got problems. Great. Jesus is the best person for people with problems. They don't think they got problems. Great. Jesus is the best person for them because they're a liar and they don't even know how much problems they got because they're too dumb to realize how much problems they have. We like them too. But what happens is this. Miss Girls, you make your way. What happens is this. If we're not careful, church will become more condemning than a place, more condemning of them than a place for them to come find help, healness, and wholeness. Because when they walk in, they'll see the furrowed brows of the person on the pew look at them in a disgruntled or disapproving way. They won't feel the warmth of a loving hug or a handshake because they feel the judgment permeating the room. 
One thing I learned, though, about drunk people, they're more spiritual and Christians. More drunk people are more like Christians than Christian people are. True. Shocking to say that. I don't advertise drinking by any stretch, but I'm going to tell you, drunk people are more Christian than most Christians are. Because when they're drunk, they don't care who you are. They'll talk to you. They'll laugh with you. They'll be idiots with you. They'll hug you. Hey, man, I ain't seen you in forever. You could smell like you have thrown up and have walked and throw up for five days, and the man's like, put her here, buddy. They're so drunk. They just love people. They don't know it. They're so drunk and dumb to realize, but they're just oblivious, just accepting. I'm not saying we have to accept the sin. You can hate the sin, but you have to love the sinner. They come in here next Sunday morning smelling like three shades of alcohol, but I'm too good because I'm afraid my $150 suit might smell like bourbon or smell like whiskey or smell like some kind of alcohol. If I'm too good to hug their neck, I need to quit my job because my suit is not more above their soul. My shirt is not worth more than their heart. They come in here and they're, they're drunk. Great. Let them be drunk by alcohol or the wine and let them be drunk by the Holy Spirit when they leave. We'll fix it all at one shot. I mean, Holy Spirit gets people drunk too from time to time. We, I've seen people leave out of church drunk. People think they're drunk just like the apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 2. I've been in church service where people left drunk. People are like, oh my God, what's that church serving? Nothing. The Holy Ghost knocked them out. That was the best drink they ever had in their life. The reality of it is sometimes the church can be more condescending and condemning than we are relational and accepting. Pastor, we're not supposed to accept the sin. No, no, but we are supposed to accept the sinner. We're not supposed to be a museum for saints. We're supposed to be a hospital for sinners. We're not supposed to be a monument. We're supposed to be a thriving force in communities. We're not, not supposed to be a relic. We're supposed to be relevant and relational. See, condemnation happens. I remembered I, when I was putting this together and I'm done, I remembered in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, the Bible talked about condemnation. There are things that condemnation brings. Condemnation happens when sin, sins of commission or sins of omission, and, and those are two separate things. But when sin takes place, typically condemnation follows. Unbelief, not trusting in Jesus. But the Bible tells us in John 3, 16 and verse 18 that if we believe in Jesus, we don't have to live in condemnation. Romans 8, 1 tells us that if we live in the Christ and we walk by His Spirit, therefore now there is no more condemnation in them which is in Christ Jesus, who walk not of the flesh but after the Spirit of God. There's no condemnation. This past weekend, Brandon and I had to go to a wedding and Pennsylvania and that's why we were so late driving last night and I've been there multiple times to these places when I lived there but Ren had never been to the Amish country and there's 29 different sects if you will and groups of Amish they all branch out and there's Mennonite and there's Old Order and they just splice everywhere and some of them some of them are rough some of them are pretty tough as nails rude they don't really like outsiders and they don't really 
we went on an Amish tour. Our tour guide, the lady, she was friends with some of these Amish people. And she took strangers from South Carolina into the home. I mean, we went into these people's home. They're sitting there canning peaches, of all things. And one of the Amish guys, his name was John. They use a lot of biblical names. John, Amos, those are the kind of names they use, all biblical. He had made some fresh tomato juice. And he had some jalapenos and cayenne and, and, and ghost peppers. He had done it, mixed in it, and then this tomato juice concoction. And he said to some of them, some of the, we were all standing there, and he said, would anybody like to try it? Before you try it, I just warn you, it's hot. My wife and I like hot foods, but we always forget. Sometimes our friends don't. He didn't know us from anywhere. Never met us. We just, burrow, we just busted up in his house, Brother James, like two minutes ago. He's dressed in, in black pants, black tennis shoes, two-button suspenders, style suspenders. I'm dressed in like I just crawled out of the bed because I wasn't really wanting to look pretty that day. I was wanting to enjoy not putting on the makeup for one day. You know, I wanted to look, I wanted to look just natural. I'm in a hot mess. He didn't know me from Adam's house cat. And, of course, other people said, no, you know, we don't drink hot stuff. And he looked at me, and I said, I love hot stuff. He said, let's have a glass. Poured some spicy V8-style juice, tomato juice. Here I am drinking in a coffee cup spicy homemade V8 juice with Amish people. He don't know me. Just opened his home. It's as friendly as he could be. For all he knew, I could despise their belief system. I could be working for the government that's walking in there trying to get inside intel to go back to Washington, D.C. and try to shut them down thinking that there's some kind of cult. He don't know me. But yet, in that moment, he didn't care. He offered V8 juice. Well, homemade V8 juice. I was driving home last night and I was just replaying all the events we did. I thought about that. And I thought, you know, he didn't have to share anything with us. I would have known that he made homemade V8 juice. I wouldn't known he had a cupboard full of. He could have just sat there, Brother James, and kept canning his peaches, not said a word. I'd have said, it's nice meeting you guys, left his house, and he'd have kept it all to himself. But he didn't. He said, I got something in here if y'all would like to try it. We have Jesus in our lives, but we can't keep him to ourselves. When people walk into this house, they're not walking into our house, they walk into his house. And we must be the ones to say, hey, would you like to try Jesus? Would you like to try the Holy Spirit? Would you like, we can't keep him to ourselves, we've got to be willing to share with our fellow man. We don't have to know them, we don't have to know where they came from. This guy, John, didn't know me, but he offered something to me. People that walk through these doors, we may not know them, but we've got something, the best thing they can ever be offered. We've got it. And we have to do it. I don't want somebody to be ever, ever be able to say they felt more accepted, more loved, more welcomed, and they felt more at peace with the world than they did when they walked in this church. And you hear me, I'm not saying accept the sin by any stretch of the imagination. But hugging somebody, you can hug somebody whether you agree with their lifestyle or not. A hug is free. That has nothing. You're not condoning their behavior. You're loving them. You don't 
They can be drunk. You hug them. That don't mean you say they should drink. You're just hugging them because they're human. You can shake somebody's hand. That's free. That don't cost you nothing. You can smile. You know it takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile. You use less muscles to smile than you do to frown. Some people have not been using their muscles enough. They're locked in place. So all joking aside, seriously. I never want somebody to, I, I have heard countless people, I've, I've sat at restaurants and heard it at tables over, people fast churches. Well, I went to this church, made nobody speak to me, nobody acknowledged I was there. I've been going to that church for six months because of the size of the church. Nobody, they don't even know when I miss a Sunday. They don't call, they don't take, they don't care. Just a number to them. And it breaks my heart every time that people walk into church and feel like they don't belong and no one wants them. Oh, I promise you, the devil, along with all of his demons of the world, they'll accept anybody who wants to come. They'll gladly take them if the church don't want them. But we've got to take them so that the devil can't have them. Because we're the ones that know the way, the truth, and the life. I don't say we should condone their sin. But people, when they come to church, I've been to these churches. I've walked in churches. You could feel the judgment. I mean, I've been in churches. I don't feel like I dress really inappropriately ever. But I've been to a couple churches where I wasn't in a three-piece suit. I went in you know, khaki pants and a polo shirt. And I walked in the room and I almost felt like, oh God, I'm going to hell tonight. I could just feel it in the room. They didn't know I was a preacher. I didn't tell them I was either. They had called me a heretic, probably had some kind of, you know, pour oil in my eyes or something to get me saved again. But I say all that and say this, and then we're going to pray. The devil specializes in keeping the church captive as much as he does specializing in keeping the world captive, too. The devil will use fear in the world, but he'll use fear in the church. The devil will use sin in the world, but he'll use sin in the church. The devil will mimic the things of God in church so that the church becomes more like the world in their heart. My prayer for this house, I'm not talking about when we all leave and go home in this little building, but us as the body of Christ. I pray when people come, to our church, whether or not we accept their behaviors and sins or not, that they feel like that they were loved and welcome when they arrived. One of the things I take the most pride in out of everything we do here is when I talk to first-time guests or I follow up with them or I meet people who start coming back to church, when I, or when I, on Wednesday night, sometimes every once in a while I'll ask people, what, what does Sandy Circle mean to you? What, what drew you to the church? What, what is it that you love about our church? And it just makes my heart swell with pride. I know I shouldn't because pride goes before destruction, but I, know, I think the Lord forgives me for that. But it makes my heart swell with pride when I sit back there and I hear countless people on a Wednesday night Bible study say, well, when I came to the church, there was somebody that greeted me at the front door and they were smiling. They were just so friendly. Or someone gave me a hug. Or I don't remember that lady's name. It was some gray-headed lady. She, I don't even know what name her name was. I see her sometimes sitting in a certain corner of the building. But she came by and just said she was glad to have me there. And it meant something to me. It makes my heart swell when people just talk about how they felt at home. Felt like they belonged. That's what God wants it to be like. How can they know the love of Jesus if we don't show them the love of Jesus? How can they know peace that surpasses all human understanding 
if we don't get them to a place to where they feel at peace being in our midst. See, my prayer is for us to, we have lots of people that are battling things right now in this church. But, you know, family and dynamics, and marriages, custody battle, I'm just so much stuff. And the devil's playing mind games on all those people. Anxiety, sicknesses, I mean, he's having a field day. If you think he does that to God's people, imagine what he does to the world who has no hope and no answer. Imagine. Let it never be said that when people come through this house of worship, they left worse than when they got here. And my prayer is they leave better when they arrive here. Let's stand all over the house tonight. Let's bow for prayer. To all our online guests, God bless you. We love you. We are so honored you joined us tonight. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll see you on Wednesday night. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to simply pray a prayer of blessing.